everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. We have a great show talking to Medea Benjamin of Code Pink about her recent trip to Ukraine. And we're going to be talking to Jeffrey Sterling, a former CIA case officer turned whistleblower who was wrongfully convicted on no evidence of violating the Espionage Act. He's going to be talking to us about his own case, but also Julian Assange. And before we start and bring on the first guest, Just wanted to remind everyone, of course, to please like the stream. That's a great way to show your support for the show. It's free. It doesn't take much effort. You just literally hit the thumbs up button. Also, please subscribe. That's another way to support the show. Just hit subscribe and then the bell. We passed 100,000, which is really exciting, and we want to get to 200,000. Also, if you can become Patreon supporters for just $1 a month, that's $12 a year. You get to make the show happen. The show, it's not an exaggeration to say, The show couldn't happen without your support. And if you can afford $5 a month, then you get extended interviews and bonus interviews. So things like my interview with Glenn Greenwald on Ukraine, that's Patreon only. My really fun live show with Brianna Joy Gray, that's Patreon only. I'll be having some interviews coming up, one with Michael Hudson, and some of that will be Patreon only. And yeah, that's about it. So I think without further ado, I'm ready to bring on our first guest, Medea Benjamin. As people I'm sure know, she is the co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink. She's also co-founder of the human rights group Global Exchange, the Peace in Ukraine Coalition, Unfreeze Afghanistan, which advocates for returning the $7 billion of Afghan funds frozen in U.S. banks, ACERE, the Alliance for Cuba Engagement and Respect, and the Nobel Peace Prize for Cuban Doctors Campaign. She has been also nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. She's the author of 10 books, including most recently co-authoring War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, which is excellent. So without any further ado, Medea, welcome. Hey, nice to be on with you, Katie. I'm a great fan of the show, so it's always a treat to be on. Thank you. Well, we're huge fans of yours, so thanks. We feel honored to have you on. You wrote this book, which I highly recommend, by the way. Before we jump into, I guess, your trip on Ukraine, I wanted to ask you about whether you learned anything new or surprising when you were working on this book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict, because you obviously knew about much of the history beforehand. Was there anything that you didn't know, though, before working on this book? I didn't know that there were so many warnings that this was going to happen, that this was a war foretold, that we had so many people saying the expansion of NATO will lead to instability in the region. Russia will be forced to respond. uh, And here we are. So gathering up so many of those testimonies, those cables, those letters that kind of just hits you right in the face that this is something that could have so easily been avoided. So that's one of the things. I didn't realize, I guess, the huge difference between the East and West of the country. I used to think of Ukraine, and my grandmother is from Ukraine. She was a Jew from Ukraine, and I always thought that Russia and Ukraine were very close to each other. 
but that Ukraine was, you know, a pretty unified country. And realizing as I did the research and then being in Western Ukraine recently to understand just how divided that country has been for a long time, how much anti-Russian sentiment there has been for a long time in some parts of the country. That was something else that was new to me. And then there is the issue about the neo-Nazis, the ultra-nationalists, and getting a sense of how important or not important they have been during different periods in recent history was also something I learned by doing the research. So there were a, a lot of things. And it's interesting, Katie, that having written it now a year ago, we're about to do an updated edition. What's really striking me is how sound the analysis is, how the only thing we have to update is where things are in terms of the, the war itself, some information that corroborates what we say in the book. For example, the fact that these interviews have come out with the head of Germany and France at the time of the signing of the Minsk Accords, that's Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande, where they said, yeah, these accords weren't really to bring peace to Ukraine. It was to uh, give us more time to build up the military uh, to start arming and training the Ukrainians. So things like that. Um, you know, we talk a lot in the book, which is so important. And I hope a lot of your listeners have heard this over and over again about the way that the negotiations early on in the war could have led to an agreement. But hearing the corroboration of that from then Prime Minister Neftali Bennett from Israel, when he went on to say, yeah, he too was involved in this, not just Erdogan from Turkey, and that they were close to a ceasefire agreement when the West blew that up. So those kind of things that have come out more recently just give more weight to our analysis. And what about things that you learned? Tell us about your recent Ukraine trip and what you learned from that. Well, I was at a, a conference that I helped to organize in uh, Vienna, Austria, which we chose because it's one of the few neutral countries left in Europe. There's Ireland, Switzerland, and Austria. And we decided to do the conference there to bring people not only from Europe, but from the global south as well. We were representatives of 32 different countries, including people from Russia, from Ukraine. It was quite a gathering, a gathering that almost didn't happen because the uh, Ukrainian minister to Austria uh, said beforehand that this was a bunch of Putin apologists and that the trade union that was hosting us shouldn't host us. And there, uh, two days before it was supposed to start, they pulled the plug and said we couldn't use their venue. Uh, just like the um, place we were going to do the press conference pulled the plug as well. Uh, it was really remarkable how negative the press was, but how positive the event was. And everybody in the event was uh, condemning Russia for the invasion. Uh, but they went on to say, OK, what are we going to do about this now? And how are we going to push peace talks? So that's the background from my being in Europe and then visiting a number of the Eastern European countries, meeting with people who were uh, journalists, for example, and others trying to build up peace movements and really suffering from it, losing their jobs, uh, being ostracized. Peace is a dirty word in many places. And then uh, we went to Ukraine and Western Ukraine. Uh, I was with um, the retired Colonel Ann Wright and we were in Lviv and talking to people about 
where they saw this going. And we really understood that every time you turn on the television, you saw the Ukrainians blowing up a Russian tank, the Ukrainians blowing up a Russian ship, the Ukrainians declaring victory on this, victory on that, and that people in the street really did believe that they were going to be able to take back all of Ukraine, every inch of the Donbass. They were going to be able to take back Crimea. And when we would say to them, you really think that that's possible, especially Crimea, they would only, the only people who were willing to express doubts were people who would say it very quietly and, you know, not give, don't use my name. And uh, it's treasonous to talk about this. The other thing that was very sad, Katie, is the level of hatred, not just at the leaders of Russia, at Putin and the soldiers, of course, totally understandable, but the hatred of Russian people, the hatred of Russian language, the hatred of Russian art, literature, I mean, it is to the point where there are stores that would have signs above the stores saying the language of the oppressor will not be tolerated here. And a lot of people moved from the war-torn areas of eastern Ukraine to more safety in western Ukraine, and they're Russian-speaking. And they were feeling extremely vulnerable, afraid to speak in public. So uh, it's a very tough situation. We saw of funerals happening every day as we'd walk down the streets. And, you know, one minute you'd think, wow, this place, you can hardly tell there's a war going on. People were out in the street late at night, cafes, having their beers, having their ice cream. There was a lot of merrymaking uh, and very fancy, fashionable shops. Uh, but then another minute you would see a funeral happening in one of the churches and when we went to the cemetery, it was the newly minted graves of hundreds of Ukrainians from Lviv who had been killed. Uh, and uh, the families, the children weeping there, putting flowers on the grave. It, it's, it was very sad. But what was um, really clear to me is that uh, any opening for uh, peaceful um, discussion of where this can go is going to have to come from Zelensky because he is the one that have been at one point in uh, late March, early April said, we're not going to be able to join NATO. Peace is the most important thing. We might have to make some territorial concessions. And he said all of those things early on and people were, you know, listening and certainly many of them agreeing. It's going to have to come from him now to say, we're going to have to go to the negotiating table. We can't keep this war going. It's too harmful for our people. But, you know, that's not going to happen. And people told us this quietly as well until there is pressure from the U.S. to make this happen. So I want to get back into the question of how this could be resolved. But before we do that, staying a bit on how dangerous it can be to call for peace, to call for diplomacy. You recently, I guess it was in May, so a few months ago, you were in Minneapolis and you spoke at an event co-sponsored by the local Veterans for Peace and Women's Against Military Madness chapters. And we actually have some footage of you getting yelled at. And then the footage ends abruptly because you're filming this with your phone and then your phone is grabbed. Can you set up what happened? And then we'll show the video. Yeah, let me just say I've been on about a 70 city tour. And most of the time it's great discussions, sometimes very heated discussions, which I welcome. But other times, there have been so many protests from those who support the Ukrainian resistance or Ukrainian-Americans 
that the talks have been canceled at universities, at bookstores, at peace churches. And this was an example of a very vociferous group of protesters, a very aggressive group, a scary group, and how uh, it turned into not only did he grab my phone, but then when I asked somebody from the Veterans for Peace to come and help me get my phone back, they ended up pummeling him and he had to go to the hospital for a dislocated shoulder. He is still recovering from that. So it's an example of, yes, uh, even in this country, uh, advocating for peace talks can be very dangerous. So let's take a look at this. You are a f***ing, you're a f***ing clown for the f***ing worst people in the world. And the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian people want us to stand up to you and you're f***ing lies because you're a f***ing liar. And I want you to know that everywhere you go, we don't like you. You're not accepted. The true anti-imperialists in this world oppose you because you're a f***ing liberal. You're not an anti-imperialist. You f***ing support people. I'll tell you what else. So that's where your, I guess, phone gets grabbed. And then how old was this person who got his shoulder dislocated? Oh, he's in his 70s. He's an elderly veteran. And, you know, I felt awful about it because all he was doing is coming in to try to help me. And um, so it was a terrible example. But I I would say uh, that it's so crazy out there, um, Katie, how the people that you'd think would be leftists, progressives, many people who I've worked with over the years have had their heads turned around on this one. And it's not just that they disagree, it's that they disagree in such a disagreeable way, uh, such a way that that, uh, that can uh, be very aggressive and violent as well. So um, it's unfortunate. I'm going back out on the speaking tour. I'm going to be in New England this summer. I think it's important to be out there uh, organizing, educating, and I welcome people who have a different point of view, but let's talk about it in a civilized way. I don't even mind, you know, I'm a protester, Katie. I don't mind if they run up on the stage and grab the mic. I have had that several times and I say, welcome, here's the mic, use it. Give us your point of view. Um, That I consider part of nonviolent protests and I I welcome that, but not this other kind of stuff. Physically attacking. You you had your phone grabbed, just to clarify, but it was someone else who was actually physically attacked trying to get your phone back. Yes, but I have been spit at, I have been pushed, uh, I have faced tremendous aggression in several of these locations. So this wasn't the only one. This is one that we happen to have video footage of. Why do you think there is such vitriol towards you and others like you? Well, yes, certainly it's not just towards me, it's towards Jeffrey Sachs, it's towards uh, so many people who have really just been advocating for peace talks. They say that we... Uh, distort the uh, the history of this, that we don't give agency to the Ukrainians themselves, who are the ones that rose up against a, uh, a an oligarch, a, um, a, a, a dictator, Yanukovych. And we say, uh, yes, they did, but then it turned very ugly with, um, with the neo-Nazis uh, violently turning it into a coup. We also talk about the billions of dollars of U.S. money that's gone into building up the anti-Russian uh, sentiment and organizations. 
And they try to belittle that and say that, um, well, you know, that's they might have given that money, but these sentiments were really from the grassroots, uh, you know, which is true as well. It's a combination of those things. Um, they also say that we distort this idea that the Minsk Accords uh, were a good agreement uh, and that the Ukrainians were the ones who wouldn't um, uh, who wouldn't uh, comply with the agreement and on and on. But uh, I guess they um, their view is that because we put in a context that is not meant to justify the invasion, but to understand it, that that is somehow justifying the invasion, which it absolutely is not. So much of what you do is trying to set up the context so that you can have a understanding and others can have an understanding that can actually lead to hopefully the end to this conflict. So can you explain how that works, how the context could inform a possible ceasefire or negotiation or diplomacy? Yeah, if you don't look and understand that this issue of NATO is a real issue and that Putin had said years and years ago, this is a red line for us. Inviting Ukraine into NATO is unacceptable. And so to understand that, you can't then turn around and say, NATO, uh, yes, invite Ukraine in, set a date for it and um uh, oh, by the way, you can't join NATO until this war is over. Well, the war is not going to be over as long as you have the joining of NATO on the table. And this idea of neutrality in exchange for Russian troops leaving, that was something that was accepted a month after the war began. And so, um, yes, understand the history to be able to understand what are the solutions. You look at the Minsk Agreement. There are solutions there. You send in international observers. Um, you give the people the right to self-determination. You have referendum that are uh, supervised by international monitors. Uh, those kinds of things uh, uh, are things that have been, that could have been implemented the, in the past and weren't. And so um, the when people say, well, you know, what are the solutions? We say, let's look back at that agreement that was almost signed in April. Let's take those points. Uh, and let's also look at the things that have been proposed by many different mediators who have stepped forward, like the Chinese. You know, the Chinese proposal is really just a set of basic principles. And the U.S. should have responded to that proposal by saying, Oh, okay, here's 12 points. We agree with one, three, five, six, nine, eleven. We don't agree with these, but let's talk about them. And let's use your influence, China, your tremendous influence that you have on Russia to get Putin to the table. And we, the US, will use our tremendous leverage that we have with Zelensky to get him to the table. You know, that would have made sense. But of course, what the US want has wanted to do was to bleed Russia through this. Uh, to keep this war going. They say it's to put Ukraine in a better negotiating position, but guess what? Ukraine is in a worse and worse negotiating position as time goes by. They should have done what the chief of staff, General Milley, said uh, way back uh, when winter was setting in. Ukraine is in a good position. They had a successful counteroffensive. Seize the moment. Go for negotiations. Instead, it stalled. Their counteroffensive is stalled. We know uh, that this is not going anywhere in the battlefield that's good for Ukraine. And so it doesn't make any sense 
what Biden is saying, that we have to pour more and more weapons in so that Ukraine is in a better position when it's time for negotiations. What's so scary is that there are really people, I mean, there are people who are cynical, like Biden, and obviously the arms industry, they know full well what's going to happen. They know that people are going to die. This is just the price that they think should be paid for either their profits or for Biden for geostrategic reasons. But what's so frustrating is that there are really people who, in good faith, think that the way to defend Ukraine is to send it more weapons. And you constantly hear, don't they have the right to defend themselves? And that's something that you address in the book. So I want to know what your response to that is. Well, they have the right to defend themselves, but do we have the obligation to keep pouring in more weapons and pushing them rather than pushing them to the negotiating table? If we really believe, like the Pentagon leaked documents said, that this is a stalemate, that this is a war of attrition, then shouldn't we uh, be doing something other than keeping this war going? Because it really is the Ukrainians and the Russian soldiers who are paying the price, as well as the world community. And it's important to look at it in the broader context, especially now that the Russians just pulled out of that grain deal. Who is affected by this? It's the entire world. It's the poorest people in Africa. And you could say, well, Russia shouldn't have pulled out of the deal, and they shouldn't have, and hopefully they'll go back into the deal. But it's to say that whether we talk about energy prices or the price of food or uh, the uh, missed opportunity costs of putting this money into addressing our burning climate instead of uh, killing each other, uh, that this is a war that in fact affects the entire planet. And that's why the global majority... Uh, says, we don't want to take sides in this. We want to see this war ended. And that's where we, the American people, come in. We are not doing enough to put the pressure on our elected officials, whether it's in the White House or people who are supposed to represent us in Congress. I can't tell you how disgusted I am by the Democratic Party, and especially those who call themselves progressive, that they haven't done a thing since back in October of last year when they put out a letter signed by only 29 people saying, yes, let's keep giving them weapons, but in addition to that, maybe we should start talking. When they got slapped down and they withdrew that letter in 24 hours, the, most of them have never said a word since then. And it is really not acceptable. We have to do something. And Katie, I, I think that your uh, listeners, your viewers, um, you know, probably think, oh, it's a waste of time to call Congress. I hate calling Congress. You know, I hate calling Congress too. I hate walking the halls of Congress too. And I do it all the time. I was there today. I was there yesterday. I do it not because I like it. I do it because I don't want to see World War III. I don't want to see a nuclear war. I don't want to see the Zaporizhia nuclear plant be blown up. That's why I do it. So we have to get on the phones and we have to make those visits. And uh, if you're up for it, Protest them. When you see them in a town hall, get up and say, why aren't you supporting peace talks? What is wrong with you? Um, so, yeah, that is that is my um, uh, bullhorn right now is to say we've got to do more. You at Code Pink, you recently issued a statement. NATO is a warfare alliance and should be dissolved. Can you tell us about the statement and also share your reactions to the recent NATO summit in Lithuania? We have been involved in an organization called Say No to NATO for a long time now, way before this war began. We had recognized that 
NATO is about war, about militarism, the illegal bombing of Kosovo, the illegal uh, intervention in Afghanistan that lasted for 20 years and left the people of Afghanistan in worse shape than they were before, uh, the illegal overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya, where the people of Libya are still paying the price for that, and now the intervention in Russia. But not only that, look at this Ukraine, uh, look at this uh, NATO summit uh, where they invited their partners, special partners uh, from the Pacific, and those are Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, and Japan, uh, to focus on how we're going to build up our opposition to China. So they already have their sights set on China uh, and do war games. And of course, the U.S. has been involved in that for many years in that region, but now pulling NATO into that as well. So NATO is dangerous. NATO is aggressive. Uh, and we have a chance, Katie, because NATO summit is going to be held here in Washington, D.C. next year. It's going to be in July 7th to 9th. Uh, here in the nation's capital, and we have to build up a big opposition uh, when NATO is here to show that there are people in the United States that understand that when people say NATO is a defensive alliance, that's just a big lie. NATO is a threat to global peace and security. Another thing that you at Code Pink condemned formally was Biden's decision to send cluster bombs to Ukraine. And I wanted you to react to a clip of Margaret Brennan from Face the Nation asking the Ukrainian ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markarova, about how Ukraine would be using these cluster munitions being sent by the U.S. These cluster munitions drop bomblets, um, and sometimes those bomblets don't explode right away. And years later, they can be a danger. I've met victims who've been blinded and maimed in places where the U.S. dropped these decades ago. So when the White House says that Ukraine has made assurances on how it will use these, how do you do this and assure that civilians won't be hurt? Well, first of all, let's remind where we started with. Ukraine is the most mined country now already. Russians mined everywhere. The unexploded ordinances everywhere. So we're doing a lot of demining. And U.S., by the way, is helping us a lot in demining already now. With regard to these munitions that we will be getting from the U.S., First, they are of a much higher quality, so to start with. And second, as responsible as we are with all other American-supplied or European-supplied munitions, we are controlling it. We, we have a very uh, responsible ways. We use the NATO type of log-fast system to record every unit that we have, where it is. We will use the same type of approach to this. We will know where we use it, how we used it. And of course, you know, every time we liberate our territories, this is D-miners are the first people that go there, try to make sure that the, the area is safe. So we will do exactly the same. And I imagine Russia uses these on civilian areas. I have to imagine Ukraine has pledged not to do that and only to use them on soldiers. Oh my God, they use uh, this and phosphor and everything else specifically on civilian areas. And destroying civilian areas, and not we definitely we will not do, we will not use it in civilian populated areas. So there you have Margaret Brennan saying she has to believe that Ukraine won't use it on civilian areas. And the ambassador says, of course, they won't. But 
they already have been using it on civilian areas. And we know this not because of the Kremlin telling us this, but Human Rights Watch has documented this. Absolutely. Unfortunately, both Ukraine and Russia have used cluster munitions, and we should condemn them for doing that. What the U.S. is sending in is a huge increase. We're talking about hundreds of thousands that they are sending in. And how can you say they're not going to use it in civilian areas? First of all, the battles are being fought in civilian areas. And second of all, what's a civilian area today and what's a civilian area five years from now, 10 years from now? You're talking about fields where children will be walking and they will be losing their legs, losing their eyes, losing their lives. So to say that this is going to be used only in the battlefield, the battlefield is civilian area. So that's ridiculous. And I think, you know, we shouldn't fault the Ukrainians for wanting these weapons, except that it's going to be used in their country and blow up their people. But we should be faulting our government for violating uh, an, an international treaty that came about because people had seen for so many years, whether it was in uh, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Lebanon, uh, the the results of this for years and the um, uh, the way that it affects civilians. Um, this the world community came together to say this is a particularly abhorrent uh, kind of munition to be used in warfare, and we are banning it, 123 countries banning it, including many of the NATO countries. And here we see it's just incredible that the NATO countries themselves haven't stood up and said, we don't want these used. We will not cooperate with the United States if you insist on sending these munitions. But a couple of them just said some things like, well, you know, we don't really like these, but they didn't stand up like they should have. I want you to respond to another set of comments that I think expresses a very commonly expressed opinion from Michael Lubin. Understand this. Stopping the arms flow to Ukraine would bring about a rapid peace, but on Russian terms. And Ukraine is helpless without a constant supply of Western arms. So what's your response to those statements? Well, there's a couple of things. Right now, there are so many weapons. And, you know, in the beginning, uh, Ukrainians said, and they still say to us, uh, we get uh, we get a lot of our weapons from recovering what the Russians have. Uh, you know, we have no way of saying don't get those or don't keep fighting. You know, that's up to the Ukrainians to do. Um, but uh, we go back to this issue of where is it going? I think that's the thing that we have to come together and say there. You know, how how long do we want this war to go on? You know, Katie, I wanted to bring up this amendment that a Republican uh, had introduced that is looking precisely at asking the administration, what is your strategy? Please let us know. How do you define success? What are the measures of success and failure? Why is this in the U.S. national interest? How? What is your diplomatic plan? How much is it going to cost us next year and five years from now? Uh, and we want to report on this. And they said, we're going to hold back on new monies until we get this report. Uh, and uh, there were 129 Republicans who signed this, and yet not one Democrat, not one Democrat wants to ask Biden, what is your strategy for winning this war or ending? More important is ending this war, because I would say this is a lose-lose situation. There is no winning. Uh, there has to be an ending. And so um, we are very fortunate 
that this same amendment by a congressman, uh, his name is Warren Davidson. He is a conservative. He is a, um, a former army ranger. He is going to reintroduce this in September as a standalone bill. And this is our chance now to really push Democrats to sign on to it as well so that it's a bipartisan bill because this is the most mild, logical thing you could say to the administration. Just tell us your plan. And I uh, encourage everybody who's listening and watching this um, to get a copy of this. We post it in, at the Code Pink website and at Peace in Ukraine. Uh, it's called Report and Strategy for U.S. Involvement in Ukraine. Uh, and we have some time now from now until it comes out in September to be uh, telling our Congress people that this is going to be a chance for them to push the administration on what's the diplomatic path that they're going to use. And what about Biden's announcement that he's sending in 3,000 more U.S. troops to Europe? I think we should be very concerned about this. You know, I'm old enough and got my uh, beginnings in the anti-war movement from the time of Vietnam, and it certainly feels like that same kind of mission creep. We saw in those leaked Pentagon papers that there are uh, CIA people, there are special operations people inside Ukraine. We also know that the more we send in weapons, the more the Ukrainians need outside people to help them repair those weapons. And so you get the mission creep there, uh, and now sending more troops to the battle, to the area uh, in Europe. And we have now about 80,000 troops already in Europe. Uh, I think this is something that should be of great concern to everyone. And we should be saying once again to our congressional representatives, they are the only ones who have uh, the right to declare war according to the Constitution. And don't let Biden uh, move us little by little into a direct war with Russia. He has said he doesn't want a direct war, and I believe him that he doesn't want it because guess what? It's not popular with the American people, and there are elections coming up. And I, uh, I'm sure there are people in his campaign and in the administration who say it would really be good uh, if we could wind this down, but certainly we don't want to see it escalated with U.S. troops there. But war has its own momentum. We can't predict what's going to happen. And the Ukrainians have been asking for more and more and more. And certainly it's in their interest to provoke some kind of incident in a NATO country that would force the invocation of Article 5, meaning an injury to one is an injury to all. We'll have to step up our involvement. And there we would be in the midst of a direct war with Russia. Um, we have to stop that from happening. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, the comment that th it would be peace on Russia's terms, isn't peace on Russia's terms better than endless war? And when is it going to not be also like Russia does have an advantage because of the size of the country? And when is it not going to have that advantage? Well, there's this issue of peace on Russian terms. First of all, if you believe, which I believe, uh, that the Russians wanted to come in and uh, get rid of the Zelensky government and in install a pro-Russian government to uh, in, in Ukraine, they obviously weren't able to do that. So they lost already. Um, they are trying to hold on to the 20% that they 
uh, managed to get back, and also Crimea, which they've had since 2014. But they're certainly not getting the whole of Ukraine. And so it really becomes an issue of where do you draw the line in the Donbass and what happens to the people in Crimea and when, at what point, can they have an internationally supervised referendum where they get to decide what their fate will be. Those are the kinds of things that have to happen. So um, each side has to make compromises. That's what negotiations are about. And they have to sweeten those compromises so they can go back to their own people and put them in some kind of context as if there were a win for this. That's what you can call an off-ramp. That's what Biden said that Putin needed a while back. Everybody needs an off-ramp. Zelensky needs one. Putin needs one. And the U.S. and NATO need one as well. Uh, So, um, you know, you don't talk to your uh, friends. You talk to your adversaries. There are plenty of reasons uh, to think that Putin is a a terrible, uh, brutal invader who should at some point in his life uh, face uh, charges of war crimes. But now is not the time to do that. Now is the time to get him to sit down at the table. And, you know, there are people during that uprising of Prigozhin and the Wagner group who thought, oh, great, this could be the end of Putin. Uh Uh-oh, if that was, imagine if you had somebody else who came in, chances are they would be much more brutal uh, than Putin is, much more nationalist than Putin is. In fact, the kind of condemnation or or, or opposition that Putin is getting inside Russia uh, includes not only people who want to end this war and are going to jail for their opposition, but includes a lot of people who don't think he has been tough enough. And those are the ones who would have the upper hand if something happened to Putin. Right. And what about the claim Russia has to be stopped or Putin will invade Ukraine. I see this in the comments, but I also hear this all the time. Well, Russia has to be stopped. That's true. Russian troops have to get out of Ukraine. Uh, But the way to do that, again, is to go for negotiations uh, and to sweeten it. You know, there's a lot of things that the U.S. could do. The U.S. could talk to Russia about U.S. bases that are in Romania and Poland that are a tremendous provocation. You know, we don't have to say that we like the fact that uh, powerful countries have their own interests uh, that have to be taken into account. I don't like the fact that the U.S. has invaded countries all over Latin America because uh, it thinks it has the, uh, that this is our sphere of influence. But just look what happened recently when there were unsubstantiated rumors that the Chinese had a listening post in Cuba And there are Republicans who want to go and bomb places in Cuba. Um, This is to say that the uh, U.S. says it's totally unacceptable for China to have some kind of uh, military base inside Cuba so close to the United States. Well, that's what Russia has been saying about Ukraine for a long time. So we can't be so hypocritical to think that the U.S. has the right to have its sphere of influence, but to negate uh, the the idea that a powerful country like Russia also has its interests that have to be taken into account. And what else is Code Pink working on? You mean aside from Ukraine? Because when it comes to Ukraine, we're also working on uh, building up calls for peace from the religious community. We're taking out ads in uh, Sojourners magazines and other religious papers. Uh, we're supporting the Pope's efforts and the Pope's envoy 
peace envoy was just here in Washington meeting with Biden to talk about peace overtures. Uh, so um, we are organizing um, uh, different constituencies, the environmental community. Um, we're organizing around this issue that war is not green. And when there are uh, big protests against the uh, 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 climate crisis, we are there constantly with a contingent that says uh, war is also uh, a, a bad for the environment and we have to connect these issues and get more environmentalists to speak out, not only against the war in Ukraine, but against militarism in general. We do a lot of work in, uh, in Code Pink around other countries as well, uh, Israel, Palestine, the issues of uh, all over Latin America, trying to get Cuba off the terrorist list, uh, supporting the people in Peru uh, that are trying to bring back democracy to their country, um, sanctions against uh, Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, Korea. We're very involved with the group called Women Cross the DMZ and having events starting up at the end of July uh, in Washington calling for peace on the Korean Peninsula that hasn't had peace since the armistice was signed in 1953. So um, we're very active. And I would say in general, our mission is to move us from a country based on a war economy and a country that puts a trillion dollars now into militarism uh, and instead be a country that lives more humbly uh, and peacefully on this earth with uh, the rest of the world and puts our resources into dealing with the climate crisis and issues like poverty and pandemics. And what are your thoughts on the non-binding resolution stating that the United States will always stand with Israel? Oh my goodness, it was just pathetic to see that, uh, that said that Israel is not a racist state and Israel is not an apartheid state and we will always be with Israel. And that there were only nine people, nine Congress people who voted against it. You want to sometimes just hit your head against the wall and say, what are we going to do with this Congress that is so horrible? And we do have to applaud those nine because you know, anytime they stand up for truth when it comes to uh, the rights of the Palestinian people, they get such pushback. So, yes, let's make a, 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 it a um, effort on our, uh, our part to uh, list the nine people who stood up and make sure we call their offices and say thank you. Yeah, and Rashida Tlaib, of course, as usual, is especially eloquent on this. Absolutely. It was so wonderful to hear her. And so horrible to hear the Israeli President Herzog and so horrible to see both the Democrats and the Republicans jumping up just like they did when Netanyahu addressed a joint session of Congress. It's just absolutely pathetic. And, you know, it, it shows how out-organized we are. Um, yet, on the other hand, uh, it is such a disconnect between the changing views of the American public, and especially as as we know, Katie, as American Jews, uh, the changing uh, views in the Jewish community that are more sympathetic to the Palestinians than to Israel. So at some point, our Congress in the White House has to catch up with the sentiment of the American people. Finally, why do you think there isn't more of a an embrace of diplomacy, especially among, say, the squad, where we would hope to hear it and see it? Barbara Lee, for instance, she's condemned the cluster munitions, but there aren't really calls for diplomacy. In fact, on a purely rhetorical level, and probably cynical, but we hear the voices who are remotely 
at all critical of funding this war in Ukraine come from the right? Yeah, it's a, just a mind-boggling thing. I really don't understand it. I try to get hold of uh, the people in the Progressive Caucus any time that I can and talk to them. And usually when it's a one-on-one, they'll say, you're right, you're right, we have to do something, and they make promises, and then they do, don't do anything. I think the Ukrainian community is very well organized, very well funded. Uh, I think the a majority of people in Congress are hawks. And once momentum for war starts going, let's remember, this is such a, um, a, a, a corrupt system that we have where these Congress people take money from the weapons companies. There are more lobbyists for the weapons industry than there are members of Congress. You go into a congressional office and you will see in the office itself somebody that's coming uh, that's that's embedded in the office for a year coming from the Pentagon. So they are bombarded constantly with the message of uh, war, 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 militarism, militarism, militarism. And of course, then there's the issue of jobs, jobs, jobs uh, in their communities. Um, so, you know, those are some of the reasons. But the other is, I think that um, this war machine uh, does such a good job at its own propaganda, and it has the mainstream media behind it. And thank goodness we have programs like yours, Katie, uh, and others where we can get the message out. And thank goodness there are people running for office uh, now for the presidency who are giving a different narrative because that's reaching millions more people. And eventually, just like we said in the case of Israel-Palestine, Congress and the White House have to catch up The same is true in this case of Ukraine, because the opinion polls show it is less and less a popular thing to be spending billions of our dollars on this war instead of things here at home. Uh, And it's not going to be good for uh, the the, uh, people running for office as the elections get closer. Well, thank you so much, Medea, for your time and also all your great organizing. Well, wonderful being on with you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was great. Always love talking to Medea. She's so great and she's so tireless. Very excited to be bringing on our next guest who is making his debut on the Katie Helper Show. Jeffrey Sterling is a former CIA case officer turned whistleblower who was wrongfully convicted on no evidence of violating the Espionage Act for which he was sentenced to federal prison. His memoir, Unwanted Spy, chronicles his experience with race not only within the CIA, but also in America. He is currently part of the Progressive Roots Action Team. So welcome, Jeffrey. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Of course. Thank you for coming. So we wanted to talk to you about Julian Assange, of course, someone else who has been convicted under the Espionage Act. But first, can you share with people your story? Yeah, I was a a CIA case officer. I specialized in uh, Iran, uh, Iranian targets. Um, and I, along the way, you know, I ran into racism at the, uh, at the CIA. I sued the CIA for racial discrimination. Uh, my case was not allowed to go forward because of, uh, the courts agreed and the then administration argued that for, uh, me as a black man to fight for my civil rights would be a threat to national security. Uh, but during my time also there, I was involved in a faulty uh, dangerous uh, operation targeting uh, the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, I blew the whistle on that program to 
uh, the intelligence community uh, committees, uh, the House and the Senate uh, intelligence committees, uh, shortly after I made my concerns known about this operation and the danger that it could pose to our troops, who at the time were going into Iraq, um, information related to that operation, uh, information related to the operation was leaked uh, to a journalist. Uh, I was accused of being that leaker. I was uh, charged with violating the Espionage Act. I was put on trial uh, and found guilty on absolutely no evidence. I spent two and a half years in prison. So yet another case of the only people who get in trouble for something bad that the CIA does are the people who expose what happened. Although in this case, you didn't even expose the thing that they accuse you of exposing. Absolutely. And it's funny thing during the trial, and it was nothing more than a show trial. There was testimony from one of the individuals on one of the intelligence committees who admitted, and it was entered into, you know, factually that she had lost her job, was fired from one of those committees for leaking information to a journalist. And it just so happens the journalist she leaked that information to was the same one they accused me of leaking information to. Uh, yet that didn't matter to the court, uh, the jury, uh, the prosecutors, uh, certainly not the Obama administration at that time who orchestrated the charges against me. Uh, but that just shows how much of a, a show trial it was, how much of a farce uh, bringing charges uh, related to the Espionage Act against particularly whistleblowers. Um, and it was a horrendous ordeal. And at some point, I'm going to still be able to laugh about it. So, And what was the thing that you did expose? Can you tell us about that? Well, the operation, it was called Operation Merlin. Uh, the design was to put plans for a nuclear weapon into the Iranian program. Those plans would come from an intermediary a uh, former Russian scientist who, you know, looking for some way to make money, and he just happens to have some plans based on his work in Russia. And we would rig the plans so that they wouldn't work if they were used, but in such a way that the Iranians wouldn't detect the flaw in the plans. Well, as we were going along, it became clear to me that there really was no flaw. The, the, the plans were so obvious. Uh, the plans were so indicative of something that could be fixed, that instead of thwarting the Iranian efforts to gain a nuclear weapon, we would actually be helping them. Uh, we would speed, we'd be, we'd be uh, increasing their ability to get and develop nuclear weapons. Uh, I let my management know my concerns because I had been given, this is an operation that had been going on years prior to my involvement. And my involvement was to target Iranians, uh, to train the intermediary in how to approach Iranians. Uh, but when it came clear to me that all the assurances that I were that I was given about the safety measures in place for this operation that they were all false, I raised my concerns, uh, and the response was basically shut up. I was uh, then quickly shuffled off of the operation. Uh, the discrimination I faced at the agency increased, and I was shortly thereafter fired. And what was this discrimination like that you experienced? Well, I um, had been there for years uh, as a case officer, a uh, field agent, and I wasn't receiving the same opportunities as everyone else. I wasn't even receiving the same tools as other officers in the same position as myself. And I asked, I was like, why am I not receiving the same cover as everyone else? Cover is very important if you're working overseas. I mean, if I go and say, 
I work for the CIA, I'm not going to find many doors open to me. But if I have an appropriate cover that no one would suspect that I was with the CIA, then I could operate eff- efficiently. And a cover I was given was uh, I was essentially a logistics officer. I was essentially a janitor. Yet despite the hindrances from my own organization about how I was able to do my job, I was successful as a case officer with the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, but I was asking as the years are passing by, it's like, why am I not receiving the, the, the proper tools? Why am I not receiving the same opportunities? And the agency being what it is, my management told me to my face, well, you kind of stick out as a big black guy speaking Farsi. And, you know, I was taken aback by that. I mean, what they were saying was I could not be uh, secure um, because I was black, tall, and I speak Farsi. Of course, the agency, that's where I learned Persian language. And that didn't make any sense because prior to that, I had been successful in my job. Yet to them, you know, it wasn't, none of that mattered. All that mattered to them and all that they saw was the color of my skin. And, you know, my response when they said that to me, and they said it with just such incredulity and such an arrogance that they knew they were right. I was taken aback and I said, well, when did you realize I was black? You know, as if that mattered. And to them, they just kind of laughed it off. It's like, well, you know, that's our decision sort of thing. So um, that shows the arrogance because I had traveled the world as a CIA officer undercover and had never been anywhere in the world. No one ever suspected me of working for the CIA. I did not fit the profile of someone who's with the CIA. Uh, yet to the agency, that that resource that I brought to the organization, that I brought to the assistance of our national defense was a hindrance. It didn't matter to them. So, I mean, that's the kind of discrimination I received there. I, I tried to fight through that. I tried to, you know, you're in a job. It's like, well, you know, I'm going to prove to you that I'm much more than what you just, what you want to see. Uh, even with my successes. And when I was my last posting in New York, it got ridiculous, especially after I was raising my concerns about that faulty operation. Then I was required to do 10 times more than officers who had the proper tools, who had the proper support. And, you know, I said, okay, that's it. I've had enough. And I uh, started the, you have to do the internal EEO process. And um, that, of course, was in the agency's favor. And then I sued in federal court. And what happened then? That was also unsuccessful. Yes, it was. Well, in a sense, I filed suit in New York, in the Southern District of New York. The government, the Department of Justice, argued that for me, because I worked at the CIA and classified information, because I worked there, it would pose a threat to national security if this trial goes forward, if my action were to go forward. The court in New York said, no, he has a bona fide case, prima facie case of employment discrimination. This case should go forward. But the government was able to venue shop and had the case moved to the Eastern District of Virginia, the Fourth Circuit, which is notoriously pro-CIA, pro-government. And immediately that court sided with the government 
that my case could not go forward because of a threat to national security. It was interesting, their language uh, from that court, they said that uh, they knew that this was a tremendous burden that I was having to bear, but that the interest of national security outweighs any of my civil rights um, you know, aspirations. <laughs> um, and you know, that, that I'm still taken aback. Uh, it still really hits me to this day that a black man fighting for his civil rights is considered a threat to national security in this country. I don't know a lot about the CIA, but to prove a case of discrimination doesn't seem like it would require sharing any secrets. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, we could just talk. There would be no need to get into sources and methods. And that's their argument. Say, well, we would have to reveal sources and methods. Well, not really. What is in the national interest of, you know, national security interest to discuss the racism that you are perpetuating? The fact that you told this man that he was too big and black to receive the same treatment. What in that sense is a threat to national security? But the interesting thing is, okay, so they were able to have my case stopped, you know, not because of the merits of the case, but because of national security. When I was charged with violating the Espionage Act and went to trial for that, sources and methods were on, par, were on stage for all to see. I would not have gone, you know, in my case for discrimi my discrimination case, wouldn't have gone into the the deep of sources and methods of intelligence operations. Yet during this trial where they are accusing me of leaking classified information, they were giving up much more than I ever would have freely in a public forum. Uh, so the government is able to make an argument of national uh, to stop an action against it when the government is the defendant uh, to say, well, national security, we can't go forward with that. Yet when the government is a plaintiff in the exact same situation, decry national security in order to bring charges, uh, Espionage Act charges, uh, to persecute, to, to uh, you know, have their vengeance against me. And this was clearly retaliation for me having the gall to stand up uh, to the CIA and their discrimination. And so what has your life been like since? I mean, both prison, but also since prison. Really, it's been a hellacious ordeal. Uh, for me, the actual times when it started, from when I filed my discrimination suit, uh, we're talking about 2001, um, and I was released from prison in 2018. So it's been an ordeal. And being back from, since being uh, from prison, um, life has been difficult. I mean, that I, not only did I have the badge of being convicted of violating the Espionage Act, but also... Uh, serve time in prison. Um, so you know, our society can talk about forgiveness and things like that, but um, really, you're a pariah, and I've kind of uh, I have experienced that, uh, especially when it comes to finding work. Check that box that you've uh, been convicted, or even if they say incarcerated, uh, pretty much all bets are off. But I have been fortunate enough to uh, find support. Uh, you know, there is. A, a contingent of support that I've been able to rely on to just keep going forward, you know, keep my head held high. A uh, great thing for me was being able to publish my book. Um, you know, that was quite cathartic for me. And, you know, that was a win for me. So, it, you know, today I'm able to 
Um, I don't, I, I lost a lot. I mean, I actually went through two rounds of losing everything. Uh, after my discrimination, I actually, I was fired. I was pretty much blackballed uh, within the, t- in the intelligence community. And what was really awful about that was that was during, again, when we were going into Iraq. Um, well, well, 9-11, 9-11 happened. And I offered at that time, I was on administrative leave, and they were trying to figure out, I guess, what the better way to fire me was going to be. 9-11 happened. I offered to drop my discrimination suit to come back and help. I mean, I spoke Farsi. I had experience dealing with terrorists, uh, targeting terrorists and terrorist operations. Um, the answer to that was, uh, you're fired. Um, so, you know, I... You know, going through all that, but, you know, I feel like, you know what, I've survived. Um, And I'm, I continue to believe and hope and know that I continue to thrive. So uh, it's been a hell of an ordeal. Would I have done anything differently? Um, Absolutely not. Uh, I can still look myself in the mirror and, and be okay with who I see. And how did you get involved in Roots Action and what do you do with them? What I do with them, um, because of the aspect of whistleblowing, uh, I want to bring a perspective on whistleblowing to people. I I, I think too often uh, we don't get the perspective of the whistleblower, especially when it involves the government, uh, because the government controls the dialogue when it comes to whistleblowers. And really, when you listen, listen to the charges, DOJ, even politicians, when it comes to whistle, there, there really is no whistleblower to the government. They're all leakers. Um, so, and, and it just turns into character assassination. I mean, which is exactly what happened to me. Um, because like during that trial, they had absolutely no evidence. So let's, let's show how bad a person this Jeffrey Sterling is. And I think so often what gets lost is the whistleblower themselves. And I want to bring and working with Roots Action, hopefully I can bring that perspective. To, to people other than, you know, the government controls the dialogue about it. So maybe we, we need to hear more and learn more because whistleblowers are, are have been crucial, you know, to the development, to the equal rights in this country and to our enrichment as a democracy. And if I can contribute to that uh, through working with excellent progressive group uh, through Roots Action, and, you know, maybe that's my purpose now. And what about Julian Assange? Because I know that you're speaking about him. Yeah, I, it, it is so, I know exactly what he's facing. Once he is, uh, you know, extradited uh, to the U.S., he's going to go to the Fourth Circuit. He's going to go to the Alexandria jail. Uh, I went through all those experiences. And he's going to be going through um, dealing, trying to defend himself against the Espionage Act. And it is really almost impossible. I mean, that is a, that is a law. And the Department of Justice is using it quite effectively. It's a strict liability law. All they really have to do is show, is say, this person uh, broke this law. And the courts aren't really going to challenge it. And then they'll throw up a, a canvas of national security to be able to not even show the defendant the evidence against them. Uh, you know, that wasn't the case with me. They couldn't. And one miraculously favorable thing for me that came out of that court was the judge refused the government's uh, move to prevent me from seeing any of the evidence against me. You know, she basically said, well, he had access to all of that before. Why would he not be able to see it now? 
uh, in, in one aspect of enlightenment for that judge. But it's uh, almost impossible to defend against that. The government doesn't have to show harm. All they have to do is show, I guess, access or, or some sort of relation of classified information to someone who didn't have it. Julian Assange has been in the crosshairs of the government for a very long time. And they have him. And he's been sitting in prison for a very long time. And it's just going to be even more. What was disgusting to me is during the proceedings the, for extradition, the Queen's counsel, through the coaching by U.S. Uh, attorneys, Department of Justice, said that used my name and my case as an example of the fair treatment that Assange would be receiving in the U.S., no, particularly with regard to the court and sentence, because, yes, there is a speculation that he could have hundreds of years in prison if he's convicted. And I think that is true. I know that's true. I thought that was absolutely disgusting. It's like, you're going to use what happened with me, the travesty of a trial with me, as the benchmark for what Assange is facing. Yet they didn't bother to call me <laughs> uh, to offer any testimony about what he truthfully is going to be receiving. Uh, he's going to be facing a court that really has no concern about him as a human being with any rights at all. You're supposed to have constitutional protections. Well, he won't even have that because he's not a U.S. citizen. He's going to be in our prison system, which you know, I had my own ordeal with that once I was in prison. I had to get the attention of a U.S. senator just to receive proper medical care in prison. What politician is going to stand up for Julian Assange? And they talk about also that they were mentioning how he's going to receive great mental, psychological help for, for the pressures that he's going to be under. That is insane. I remember distinctly when I was in prison, early days of being in prison, I'm mentally, I'm, I'm still in shock and I'm quite depressed. And I went to speak to a therapist there at the prison. And I said, you know, I'm really down. I don't really feel like talking to you. Just leave me alone. And her response was, I either talk to her or she's going to put me in solitary confinement. So in order to deal with my depression, deal with the mental issues that I'm having, you're going to put me in solitary confinement. That's the kind of environment that is awaiting Julian Assange. And during the proceedings... in. And did they do that under the guise to protect you from suicide? Is that why they put you in solitary? Is that the argument? No, because I, I, I didn't exhibit any suicidal ideations at that point. She just, she didn't like me. And to her, the best way to get to an uh, inmate is to put him in solitary. I mean, that's therapy. That's their therapy. So, so what did you do, if I can ask? I, I, well, just being as uh, polite as I could at that time, it's like, well, no, I'm still not talking to you. There's nothing to talk about. I mean, even going into, it was a mandatory meeting with this individual as part of coming into the prison. I mean, she was so demeaning, so condescending to me. And I was like, well, you know what? I'll deal with my own depression. I'm fine. i find something to do here. And she's like, no, I needed to talk to her or she's going to put me in solitary confinement. I mean, that's therapy in the U.S. prison system, especially in the federal system. Wow. 
Someone in the chat asked if you lost your pension. Oh, I lost everything. The attorney expense, there was nothing left. Uh, I went through that uh, actually twice. I didn't have uh, many resources to fall back on, like when I lost my job the first time uh, with the agency, but then losing it this time and then having to face the trial, you know, legal expenses, uh, just trying to maintain my home, I lost absolutely everything. Uh, reminds me of John Kiriakou's story. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it is, I mean, what Assange is facing is just horrific. Uh, what, you know, it's an impossible battle. And now we're seeing, of course, it being used in a context that I think a lot of people are sort of shocked by with former President Trump uh, being charged with violating the Espionage Act. Um, I think this, unfortunately, may end up showing the differences in our criminal justice system for, for different individuals. Um, but I, I will first say that the Espionage Act shouldn't be used against anyone. It is being used in such an overbroad manner that no one, including Trump, uh, should be facing those charges the way it's being used. But the way it's being used, they had to. They couldn't not charge Trump with violating the Espionage Act. I think he is absolutely guilty of a tremendous amount of things with regard to national security and with regard to classified information. Uh, I think he's even, well, he's been putting his foot in his mouth a lot, I think, uh, in efforts to defend it. But the thing is, all they have to show is that he had it, he didn't return it. Well, there's ample evidence. In my case, there was absolutely no evidence, no documents, nothing, because there there was none. Um, but yet I was found guilty of violating the Espionage Act. So really, the only question is, with Mr. Trump, is how much time he's going to get in prison because even individuals who, I mean, usually when espionage act charges happen, individuals uh, most likely were going to plead and they always plead to some time in prison. Well, I didn't plead. I was not going to plead to something I didn't do yet. I also ended up in prison. It is such a slam dunk using that, using the espionage act for the department of justice against potentially any defendant. Really the only question left, is how much prison time Trump should get. What happened when you needed to appeal to a senator for medical treatment? Yeah, it was that I was in uh, prison, um, and I essentially, uh, blood tests showed that I had uh, all indications of a heart attack. Um, so I can remember distinctly, it was uh, quite a hot day. I was, I, all of a sudden, I sweating profusely, lightheaded, my chest was, my heart was beating out of my chest, about passed out a couple of times. I made it to the infirmary to speak with the, the medical staff. And, you know, the guy just, I'm sitting there panting my, <laughs> i never forget, I, again, another aspect I can sit and laugh about. So he was on the phone and he just said, uh, you know, hold up just a minute. What? Really? So, and well, their response to me essentially having a heart attack was, well, drink more water. You know, just go out and just have some more water. You know, they had blood tests and there was an indication of an enzyme in there of an injury to the heart. Didn't matter to them. So my wife, my wonderful wife, and, and through support, like organizations like Roots Action, was able to rally support uh, for me. And that, you know, 
And individuals were inundating the prison with emails, with telephone calls, you know, in the, you know, and all this time, they're refusing to see me in the medical department. And I'm saying, this is continuing. What is going on? Why aren't you helping me? And they just had nothing to say to me. But the, you know, people are inundating them with, you know, get this man help. There's people outside, of, out, outside the prison, you know, with signs uh, about it. And yet they still didn't want to do anything. But then, again, through the efforts of, of my wife and uh, many supporters, uh, a U.S. senator, uh, Sherrod Brown, sent a request to know to the prison what is going on with Mr. Sterling. And immediately I was then taken uh, off the prison to go to a cardiologist uh, to run tests and things. And, and it's so interesting as well the, the because you know, in the U.S. prison system, in the U.S. attitude, anybody in prison is a liar. So, of course, the prison was saying, well, no, he's lying. Uh, no, those tests, and, and they conveniently couldn't find the blood test that they told me showed an indication of an injury to the heart. Yet, um, when I complained about it, you know, I was lying, and they couldn't find the test. But once the senator reached out to the prison, I was finally given appropriate care. You know, I don't know how, you know, and, and that's the thing, too, in prison. You know, I saw individuals who just died and there was just really no care for them at all. Uh, they were just you know, prisons are nothing more than warehouses, human warehouses. And, um, you know, just seeing someone sitting on a bench who, who's obviously just died and then learning again, the therapy, the treatment that was recommended by the prison was, yeah, just drink some more water sort of thing. Uh, life is very cheap in prison. And it's even uh, worsened by the, the attitude of those who work in the prisons and, and, you know, and I think our society in general. Anything else you want to share with us that can be more about what the Fourth Circuit experience was like, how it's a kangaroo trial, anything? I mean, your perspective is just very interesting, so... Yeah, I, it was amazing to me. I mean, the trial, again, just talking about how much of a show trial it was. Again, there was absolutely no evidence that the government could or had uh, with regard to me. And I was the only individual, and it was established in the trial that there was hundreds of individuals who had access to this operation, even above the level that I had. Yet, I was the only one investigated. And just to show how much of a kangaroo court this really was, a key witness for the government during his trial was Condoleezza Rice, who really had no inkling of what this operation was, but she was with the administration at that time. And I think they called her for a couple of reasons. One was to you know, just show a show of supposed legitimacy uh, to the it's like, oh, if one of our uh, former, you know, officials is coming to testify, well, of course he's guilty. But I think the other aspect was that, you know, during the trial, you know, I was the only black face in the court. Every, I mean, the, the government paraded CIA officer after officer, and none of them looked like me. Or I could say I didn't look like any of them. And it was easy for them to, you know, point to say, oh, look, you know, this guy who doesn't look like the others, he's the bad guy. They kept saying he lost his discrimination suit. Well, that was a lie. I didn't lose it. I wasn't allowed to go forward. 
But Condoleezza, I think, also helped them to say, look, we're showing you an upstanding black citizen as opposed to this guy sitting at the defendant's table. And that's really all she added. And that was the only time during the trial that there was uh, the galley was full. Uh, the judge was even starstruck, I believe, having Condoleezza Rice in her courtroom. Um, and I think that just showed how much of a joke this was um, and how easy it is for the government to do espionage act cases. Because the courts aren't going to question. All they have to say is, well, this is related to national defense, national security. Courts aren't going to question it, especially the Fourth Circuit. So, you know, that that's the kind of thing that Assange is facing. And I think, you know, it's terrible what he's going through, but it's just going to get worse. Um, you know, and, and it also shows how the government is using the Espionage Act to reach any and everyone. And one, one thing about my trial that was really disturbing to me, like during the entire time, there was a question as to whether uh, the reporter, James Risen, was going to testify. Um, and he, of course, said he would go to jail before testifying about his sources. Well, I didn't care whether he testified or not. I was not his source. So, but what was distressing to me is that during that time, it was no longer the United States versus Jeffrey Sterling. It became the Ryzen case. So for the mainstream media, it was more about protecting their own. There was no regard for whether I was innocent or guilty. It was just about protecting their own. And even though the government, uh, through appeals in my case, had won the right to call the reporter and ask any question they wanted, they didn't call him. And then once he was out of danger, there was really no interest in my trial. I mean, how many trials have there been in the U.S. with CIA sources and methods on show for any and everyone to see in a public trial? Yet there was really no interest. I think there was a viewpoint that, well, he'll just, as all others do, uh, plead and then we'll move on to the next. Did he try to help you, Ryzen, like publicize your case? Not that I know of, but to me, it, there was nothing really he could have done. Um, if he had gotten on the stand and said that I was his source, well, he would have been lying, but that would have sealed the case, whatever. If he and refused to say anything, well, that wouldn't have stopped the case either. Uh, early on, after I was indicted, the government was pleading with the judge that unless they were able to call Ryzen to the stand, they had no case. Well, they had Ryzen and they refused to call him. So why did they still have a case? That train has started because they're using the Espionage Act. They could pretty much say whatever they want and do whatever they want without any regard to beyond a reasonable doubt. As, as I've said before, that the only thing that was proven beyond a reasonable doubt in my trial was that I was black. That was it. There really wasn't anything else the government uh, proved, nor that they needed to, because of the, the leeway and the power they have with bringing such charges. Um, and that's why I say, is I, we'll see how this bears out with uh, Trump. Um, you know, are there two different uh, criminal justice systems in this country? I think we all realize that there is. Know, one for us normal citizens and those for the political and you know, financial elite. Yet we'll see it's on, it, it should be on stage for us. And the result should be obvious, but uh, I kind of fear that it won't be.
And just going back to Condoleezza Rice, do you remember what she said, the types of things she said? She was just reciting that, oh, it was a great operation. It was one of the best operations in a generation. She really had no information about the operation. She did talk about how successful it had been. Um, But really, she didn't know me. Uh, She didn't know anyone directly involved in the operation. Didn't. I mean, it was just more so she was part of the CIA effort to show um, that they run good operations. I think they needed to counter the information from the book uh, that was in question um, to show that they ran good and safe and decent operations. And she was just part of that show. Uh, There was really nothing substantive. Uh, You know, I was in law school. I mean, you don't put a witness on a stand unless they add something to your case. The only thing she added, she didn't add anything factually. She didn't add anything substantively. Uh, it was uh, for appearance sake only. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining. Any final words? Anything else you want to mention? Talk about things you're working on? No, I, I'm hoping one day to uh, write a book about my uh, experience in prison, but you know, that I haven't gotten to that point yet. I think I'm still dealing with that. But, uh, you know, I'm just I'm happy to be able to come on a great program like yours uh, mm-hmm. after what I've been through. And, um, you know, I can look back and say, you know what, I, I may not be where I was prior to all of this starting, but you know what, I, I you just keep going. You just keep going. And if I can help and if that's my purpose now, um, you know, if I can, again, come on your show, whatever, talk about issues that now I have experience with and can shed light on, you know, I feel like I'm doing okay. Well, there's one thing I wanted to show, which is here is an article, I guess, from a few years ago, wife of CIA whistleblower Jeffrey Sterling asked Obama to pardon him. There's Norman Solomon from Roots Action on the left. It looks like Dr. Cornell West is in the middle. Absolutely. He was in direct contact with my wife. And um, that, that, was, that was amazing. Um, I have always had respect for Cornell West, you know, as a thinker, as someone who, you know, just he sees and, and he understands and he has a, a viewpoint. Um, and that was quite thrilling for me, uh, even behind prison walls to know that you know, my wife is out there uh, rubbing elbows with uh, Cornell West. And um, but it's, it's like those sort of things that really bolstered me, lifted me up and helped me get through the hell that was prison. Yeah. What are your thoughts on his candidacy? Um, right on. I mean, uh, run, run, Cornell, run. Uh, I think we need more diverse voices. You know, the Republican and the Democratic just machines are just I think they're so out of touch. And if his candidacy, if his candidacy means at least calling to the fore, you know, bringing in accountability, you know, bringing in some legitimacy, you know, good discussion, substantive discussion. All right. More power to him. But, you know, I love it. I love that that he's running. And I, I think he, he could potentially have a good showing uh, because I think people are just getting a little tired of the same old thing. And that's what we've had for years and years and years, the same old thing. And, um, you know, it's time for change. One other question is, has your experience with the CIA changed your thoughts on your view of the CIA and kind of the national security state? I think there is a, I still think there is a need or a a use for the CIA, but it needs to stay within intelligence, gathering gathering intelligence, 
because there is still the aspect of defending the country, just like any other aspect. I mean, even, you know, think of it as a, a, another sort of peg like the military, you know, defending this country. But the oversight isn't there. I mean, our politicians, you know, our elected officials need to be exercising oversight over these organizations, over the intelligence community, so they don't run rampant, so they don't run wild. No, they talk about they're defending the the U.S. Well, no, they're not really in some of their actions. They're defending what they do, what the viewpoint that they have. And all too often, that viewpoint is the singular sort of white male perspective. And that's in action at organizations like the CIA. I ran into that. I saw that. I was trying to combat that. I was trying to bring in a different perspective to that. They're supposed to be representative of the U.S. But, you know, they're not being called to the fore by those who are charged with oversight. Um, Yes, there's a purpose for it. Has it gone beyond that? Absolutely. Um, can there be value to the CIA? Yes. And one question I've had on some of the talks of, you know, people say, should, why should any African-American join the CIA? It's like, if we don't one, you have a right to defend your country. You have a right to be a part of the, the, the structure defending this country, just like even joining the military. But if you don't, if you shy away from it, then that the attitude that they have that doesn't look at you as a, a valuable part of this country will just continue. The only way to make change is to do it from within. More and more diversity needs to happen within the CIA and other organizations like that. Uh, so I, I think there's, there is, can be uh, a good use for the organization, but it needs to be reined in. Uh, it's been far too long. I mean, they, they're on top of a crystal mountain. Uh, and they do feel absolutely untouchable. All they have to do is cry national security. Well, thank you so much. And definitely come back on. Oh, but it's been my pleasure. Uh, it's been great. And everyone check out his book, Unwanted Spy. You're not on Twitter, huh? No, I, I let Twitter go. <laughs> so I might start with threads or what other All right, yeah, yeah. platforms that might be available. Well, have a great night, and thanks again so much. All right, thank you. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordoba. See you next time. <laughs>